Okay, uh, we are continuing with our Bible study series uh, that we've entitled Reasons to Believe. And we're basing this off of the scripture in 1 Peter 3, where we are told to be ready to give an answer or to give a reason to people uh, as to why we believe, why we have hope, why we have faith in Christ. And it says, be ready. So it involves preparation. And so what we're trying to do in these Bible studies is to equip ourselves. Uh, and really, this serves a couple of purposes. First of all, it strengthens our own faith as we come to realize better what it is that we really do believe and why we believe it. And then secondly, uh, not that we're trying to win arguments or debates with people, but to be able, as it says in First Peter, to give a logical reason to someone if, if they're really sincerely questioning and seeking, to be able to give them logical reasons why we believe in Christ. And what we completed last week was looking at the authenticity of the New Testament. And this is a question that often arises, and it leads right into what we're going to look at tonight, and that's the same thing concerning the Old Testament, and very often people say, well, you all refer to that Bible. Uh, how do we know that's true? Every religion has their own book, and every religion claims that their book is right. And all these different religions are leading to the same God and to the same place. So, um, you know, what's the difference? Well, we already saw from previous studies that that's not what the Bible says. There aren't many roads to God. There's one way, and he claims to be the one and the only creator of the universe. He sent his one and only Son into this world, and when Jesus was here, he repeatedly claimed that he is and was both God and man, and the only way to get to God, and the only way to be saved. And so, a lot of this hinges on how reliable is our Bible. If we can't really trust the Scriptures, then we're just left to dreams and visions and our own imaginations. But if we can find sufficient historical and archaeological proof that the Bible we have is essentially the same scriptures they had 2,000 years ago in the early church, then our position is greatly strengthened. And what we saw last week is that as soon after the resurrection of Christ, as maybe A.D. 60 up until A.D. 160, we have over uh, 20,000 different handwritten copies of the New Testament that have been preserved. And one of the questions that atheists or critics often raise is, how do we know we can trust that New Testament? Maybe a whole lot of myths and traditions got added in along the way, and people have changed 
different portions of the New Testament over the years. Well, that can't possibly be true because we have this overwhelming volume of manuscripts that date back to the first and second centuries that are basically identical with our New Testament today. Of course, we have different translations. Words are a little bit different. But the basic content of all of those manuscripts is the same. And we ended last week by seeing there is no other figure in all of human history that is better documented than Jesus Christ. You can take Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great or Abraham Lincoln or any historical figure. We don't have the kind of records and documentation that we have for Jesus. And so the New Testament that was written down is based on eyewitness accounts and then second-hand accounts that were taken from those eyewitnesses and compiled together into what we now call the New Testament. And basically, the same books that make up our New Testament are what we find in those early manuscripts. And I want to talk about a question tonight that often arises, and I was waiting until we completed this second part on the Old Testament to to come to that. Just who decided on which books make up the Old and the New Testament? We now recognize 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and the rest in the New, that make up what we call the Holy Bible, the Holy Book. Well, who voted those books in or who decided on those books? So that's one question we want to come back to in a little while tonight. But we want to first get into talking a little bit more specifically about the Old Testament. As I mentioned, the Old Testament in our Bible today consists of 39 books, and these are basically the same 39 books that were accepted by the Jews in Christ's day. So when Jesus was going around Galilee and meeting with the Pharisees and scribes and other Jewish leaders, and references made to the different scriptures, of course they only had the Old Testament scriptures, Um, they basically had the same 39 books that we call the Old Testament today. And this is essentially what we can refer to as the Jewish Bible that was accepted by Christ, and the Jewish Bible that was even used by the early Christians in the first century. And this is confirmed by a number of different historical uh, sources. One of the great historians, Jewish historian, that I referred to last week from the first century is Josephus. And he wrote extensively in the first century about different events. And many of his writings confirm what we now know about the Old Testament, that it was the same 39 books in his day as what we now call the Old Testament. 
Uh, another document from the early times is a document called the Talmud that also confirms a number of the statements and quotations that are found in the Old Testament. And one thing we're going to look at rather extensively tonight is numerous quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. So we're kind of working our way back in time. That's why uh, last week we wanted to first look at how reliable, how authentic is the New Testament. And once we're convinced that the New Testament is authentic, trustworthy, and reliable, we can then look, what does the New Testament have to say about the Old Testament? So we're working further and further back in time now, and basically what we're going to see is what the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and the priests of Jewish day accepted as the Scriptures is the same Old Testament that you and I read in our Bibles today. Now, let's talk a little bit more about some history. In Jesus' day, the the Jewish people acknowledged three basic divisions in the Old Testament Scriptures. And you can actually find this mentioned several times in the New Testament. And most of the quotations in the New Testament that point back to the Old Testament that we're going to look at tonight are from Christ himself. There are many, many more we could look at in the writings of Paul and the other apostles, but we're, we're just going to focus on what did Christ have to say about the Old Testament writings. Now, the three basic divisions of the Old Testament were the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, and there are different terms that are sometimes uh, interchanged for those terms. The law, referring to the first five books of the Bible, or the books of Moses, sometimes called the Torah or the Pentateuch, meaning five, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that was one division, the, the law, the Torah. Then the prophets would include not only Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and all the other prophets, but that would also include the historical writings, things like First uh, and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Judges, um, things that chronicled the history of Israel. Those were included in that second category called the prophets. And then the third group is what is referred to as the writings, or sometimes the, the poetry or the poetical books. This would be things like uh, Proverbs, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Um, the most important book in that third category being the book of Psalms. Now, let's look at something in Luke chapter 24, where Jesus actually refers to these very three categories 
of the Old Testament scriptures. And remember, obviously, Jesus didn't have any New Testament. Uh, so the scriptures that he refers to are indeed these 39 books of the Old Testament divided into these three categories, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And we turn to Luke chapter 24, and there's a very interesting exchange here between Jesus and two disciples. We're not given their names, but this is after he has risen from the dead, and he comes alongside them and begins to have this conversation with them. And initially he can see that they're quite discouraged because they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, and now he's been dead for three days, and they've kind of lost their hope. So picking it up in Luke 24, verse 25, he says to them, How foolish you are! and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, or Messiah, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now let's pause here for a minute. To prove that he is indeed the Messiah, he opens up the scriptures to them. And again, the only scriptures they had at that time would be the Jewish Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament. And we find here it mentions two of those three divisions, and later on in this same chapter, we'll see that he mentions all three, but it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. That must have been an amazing Bible study. So he's using Genesis and Exodus and Isaiah and all of the Old Testament scriptures to show them how all of these Old Testament scriptures were talking about him, the Messiah. And following along, verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Listen carefully to verse 32. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Very interesting. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures? Here again, 
The only scriptures they had would have been the Old Testament. And then, going a little further, I'm skipping over quite a bit here, but for the sake of time, he appears to them later on, and their conversation continues. And in verse 44, he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And here come these three main divisions. In the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms were generally recognized as these three main divisions of the Old Testament scriptures. So there's no doubt that the same Jewish Bible that was accepted in Jesus' day is basically the Old Testament that we have today. And this is the Bible that Jesus referred to whenever it's talking about the scriptures. Now, there's a, there's a complex concept that I'll try to simplify tonight, and there's a big word that I'll try to simplify. Very often, we get into these discussions about, well, who decided which books actually made it into the Old Testament, and who decided which books made it into the New Testament? And you do hear about some of these so-called apocryphal books that are not considered to be part of Scripture that were written um, quite some time later after, <clears throat> excuse me, after these original books were written. Well, who decided, for instance, that Genesis or Deuteronomy or Isaiah or Daniel belonged in the Old Testament, and this leads right into further discussions, who decided that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John made it into the New Testament, but some other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas or whatever, didn't? There's really not a simple answer to that question, and really the answer... Um, can really only be given when you look at it from a spiritual and a supernatural point of view. The term that's often used here is the canon, C-A-N-O-N, of Scripture, and the process of accepting certain books as being divinely inspired and belonging in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, is called canonization. So, the, the, the word really means how a book is accepted as being authoritative, divinely inspired. We can actually truly believe that it belongs in the Bible. The exact process for both the Old Testament and the New Testament is really supernatural. 
it's not like they had some kind of a political meeting or uh, a church board got together and voted which books belonged and which books didn't. Um, the best way I can explain it is as each book was written, whether we're talking about Genesis or the Gospel of John, as each book was written, it was basically self-authenticating. The book itself, uh, by virtue of its very content and the authority that was in the writing, um, it was accepted widely and generally by God's people as being divine. And we come to the New Testament and we read about a concept that Paul refers to in Romans 8, where he refers to the witness of the Holy Spirit. And the best way I can explain it is, as Genesis was written, as First and Second Kings were written, as First and Second Timothy were written, as both the Jews of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament read these various writings, there was an instantaneous witness in their hearts that this is divine. This book came to us from God. And so the process of canonization of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's not something that was uh, decided by a board of elders or a political body or some kind of a church uh, committee that was organized to decide these things. It was supernaturally um, done by God himself. And really, when you look at the Holy Bible, it's a miracle that all these books have come together into one volume, and you read from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, you get this clear sense that it's written by one author. Even though, as we've already studied, it was written by many, many different people over a period of more than 2,000 years of time, and yet there's a unified authorship and a unified message. So basically, each book was self-authenticating, and by the intrinsic divine authoritative character of that book, when the people of God read it, they said, yes, this is from God. And on the other hand, when some other false or non-divinely inspired writings came along later, uh, there wasn't that same witness. And you can read some of these other apocryphal books. I, I don't recommend it, honestly, but you can look at them if you're curious and I think you'll see that you just don't get the same witness you get when you're reading the Gospel of John or 1 Corinthians or 2 Timothy. There's just a witness of the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing um, as you are reading it. And let me just go back and look at a verse that we looked at quite some time ago. In 2 Timothy, chapter 3, 
And we'll take it from verse 15. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Paul is writing to Timothy and reminding him of how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Now, we can't be absolutely sure what Holy Scriptures Timothy had actually received by this point in time. Obviously, he had all of the Old Testament, but it's doubtful that all of the New Testament had even been written or delivered into his hands. So, by and large, Paul may be referring here mostly to the Old Testament Scriptures. And then in verse 16, he goes on to say, All Scripture is God-breathed, or your translation may say inspired. That's really what inspire means. God breathed into it, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And one other passage I want to review here is 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 20. 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Peter writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting concept. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. King James says, moved by the Holy Spirit. So, as the different writers of the Old and New Testament were inspired and moved by God to write down what they wrote, then when other people read those writings, the same Holy Spirit that inspired the writing gave witness in their spirits, this is the Word of God. And so, to answer the question, how did we come to have 66 books in our Bible, uh, it's really a supernatural thing. It's a combination of God's inspiring the writers and God bearing witness in the hearts of the people to accept those certain books as being divinely inspired and divinely authoritative. Now, let's come back to our real question now. How can we know that the Old Testament we have today is the same one Jesus had in his day? How can we be sure that it's authentic, that it's reliable, that there haven't been a whole lot of changes and additions made over the centuries, and maybe what we now call the Old Testament is totally different from what Jesus was reading in his day. There are a couple of ways we want to look at that. First, again, 
we want to look at history. What kind of historical documents do we have to uh, show us the reliability of our Old Testament? We want to look at archaeological finds. How do they line up with those historical documents? And then we want to look at a number of places in the New Testament where Jesus confirms scriptures from the Old Testament and even confirms who the authors of those particular portions of the Old Testament were. All right, let's begin first of all by looking at the text itself. How reliable is our new our Old Testament, excuse me, and what kind of historical documentation or proof do we have that our Old Testament is the same one that Jesus had? The oldest reliable um, handwritten copy of the Old Testament, and remember, uh, we didn't have printing presses back then, so all of these documents had to be handwritten. That's why you had scribes. The real job of a scribe was to handwrite and to very carefully copy these documents, particularly the scriptures. The oldest and the most reliable Old Testament text is the Masoretic text, and it's called Masoretic because it was copied by a group of Jewish scribes called the Masoretes, and this dates back to around A.D. 500. By the way, um, whenever we're talking about dates, particularly when we're dealing with ancient history like this, we differentiate by using B.C. and A.D., and even that, as we saw last week, is further proof that Jesus Christ is the most important person who ever lived in all of history because he's the dividing line between B.C. and A.D. When we use 400 B.C. or 550 B.C., B.C. stands for before Christ. So Christ is the dividing line in history, and A.D. is not after his death. It's literally Anno Domini, which is Latin for the year of our Lord. So we're now living in A.D. 2014. It's the 2014th year of our Lord. That must really bug the atheists. I'm sure they're eventually going to want to do away with this system of B.C. and A.D. because all it does is confirm that all of human history is based on when Jesus was born and when he died and everything else revolves around him. All right. All that just to say, the oldest text we have of the Old Testament, complete handwritten manuscript, is from A.D. 500. We'll see later on, we do have something older than that. But the we're talking about complete 
copies, complete manuscripts of the Old Testament that date back to the year A.D. 500, they're basically the same as our Old Testament. And the interesting thing about the Masoretes who copied uh, the Old Testament, they were very, very careful. And as was the case with all of these scribes, they were very, very careful about details, and they actually used all kinds of uh, numerical uh, formulas to make sure that they were copying every vowel, every consonant, every portion of the Scripture exactly the same. And the interesting thing about the Masoretic text of the Old Testament, whenever they came across any kind of a little variation between different manuscripts that they were copying, they made a notation of that in the margin. So, for instance, if Genesis 24, verse 3, had a couple of different uh, renderings or readings, they would make a notation in the margin that there were several different uh, versions of that particular verse. The amazing thing is, in the entire Masoretic text of the Old Testament, you only have about 1,200 of those small variations. Nothing major, just small variations on a particular word or a particular uh, sense in which a verse was written. When you consider the volume of sentences that are in the entire Old Testament, if you only have 1,200 small variations, that's not very great. And so basically, we have, from A.D. 500, a complete, intact copy of the Old Testament that isn't that different from ours, and no major doctrinal or theological differences from our present-day Old Testament. Uh, prior to the printing of the first Hebrew Bible, the first Old Testament, which dates back to A.D. 1526, we have about 1,000 different manuscripts of the Old Testament, and the oldest of those dates back to A.D. 916. And again, when you examine all of these thousand different copies, handwritten manuscripts of the Old Testament, there are only small, minor, trivial variations from manuscript to manuscript. Basically, they're all the same. Now, there's another interesting thing about the Masoretic text and a lot of the other manuscripts that were copied from it. To save time and space, they only wrote the original Hebrew using the consonants. So they left out the vowels, and they assumed that the reader would be able to understand from the context 
what the vowels should be. Um, it'd be kind of like, um, I'm trying to think of an example in English. Uh, we went to the store. You would take the E out and just write W, then W-N-T, then T, and S-T-R. And you could probably figure out, and I think those of you that are very good at texting, uh, kids are even doing this now just to save time. They leave out the vowels and just shorten words. Basically what they did, they, they left out the vowels and left it to the reader to add those from the context of the sentence. Now, why am I saying all of this? Later on, when Jewish scholars uh, copied those manuscripts, they added their own vowels. And some of those additions, uh, of course, would be subjective based on the context of the verse. And so some of those vowels that were added later on could be a little bit questionable. But understand that the oldest manuscripts uh, of the Old Testament would just be the Hebrew consonants and not the vowels for those verses. All right, after the Masoretic text, another group of manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament is what is commonly referred to as the Septuagint. And it was supposedly uh, translated around 280 B.C., that's before Christ, by a group of Hebrew scribes, and they translated it from Hebrew into Greek. And the reason it's called Septuagint is history has it that there were 70 of these Hebrew scribes, Septuagint, the sept meaning 70, um, worked together to translate the whole Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Of course, this is much older, going back to 280 B.C. And it's quite possible that, <coughs> excuse me, the version of the Old Testament that was used by the apostles and the early Christians was this Septuagint. And of course, I think you know, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek, and we've got them both now translated into English, but this was the first real translation of the Old Testament into a language other than Hebrew. Interestingly, the Septuagint and the Masoretic text don't have a whole lot of differences. Basically, we have the same Old Testament, just translated from Hebrew into Greek. There was a third translation of the Old Testament that was done around A.D. 400, and this is sometimes referred to as the Latin Vulgate and it was translated from Hebrew into Latin. And when you put these three translations side by side, 
the Masoretic text in Hebrew, the Septuagint in Greek, and the Latin Vulgate in Latin, you don't have a whole lot of difference. It's the same Old Testament in all three cases. But the most amazing discovery of all came in 1946. And you've probably heard uh, reference made to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there are a number of caves around the Dead Sea in Palestine where they found different portions of actual manuscripts of the Old Testament dating back to the time of Christ. These are first century copies of the Old Testament, and from 1946 up until 1956, and I'm not sure they may still even be finding more, but especially in that first 10-year period, they made numerous discoveries in these different caves of these scrolls that were very well preserved of manuscripts of the Old Testament scriptures that date back to the time of Jesus Christ. Amazing how God preserved all of those things for, what, more than 1,900 years. And when you put all of the Dead Sea Scrolls together, you can reconstruct practically the entire Old Testament. And guess what? It's almost identical with the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, and the Latin Vulgate. They're all the same. They all coincide. And here again, we find there are no other ancient writings about anything as well-preserved and as accurately transmitted down through time as is the Old Testament. And so, with, with great confidence, you and I can read Isaiah, we can read Genesis, we can read Joshua or Ezekiel, and know we're reading the same scriptures that Jesus would have read, that the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes of Jesus' day would have acknowledged as the scriptures. There's really no difference. Now, let's move on to another way of trying to confirm the authenticity and the accuracy of the Old Testament. I think what we've already discussed is quite sufficient. <laughs> I mean, when you find actual manuscripts of the Old Testament that are almost 2,000 years old, well-preserved, and they're exactly like all of the other manuscripts that are much more recent than that, uh, we can be pretty sure that what we have is authentic and reliable. But there are a lot of other secondary confirmations that we can use to further strengthen that argument. The Bible, and particularly the Old Testament now we're talking, the Old Testament refers to numerous nations, 
geographical places, peoples, battles, all kinds of references in the Old Testament. And for instance, for years, the atheists and the critics, they took some of the nations and cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament, like the Hittites, the Horites, the Edomites, and certain peoples and certain cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament, they said, we have no proof at all in all of our archaeological digs. We have no historical records that any of these places or people ever existed. Well, first of all, you have to think about that. Um, Finding evidence of these different nations and cities and peoples is like finding a needle in the haystack. (coughs) Once in a while, archaeological digs and expeditions, they get lucky, like with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Just because we haven't found something doesn't mean those people didn't exist. Well, there's a real problem because eventually they did find in archaeological digs evidence of the Hittites, the Horites, the Edomites, and a lot of these other peoples and cities that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And I have no doubt that as archaeology continues to dig and work and explore, all they can possibly do is further confirm the historicity of the Old Testament. I have no fear at all that an archaeologist is going to find something and say, ah, this proves the Bible's wrong. If they're really doing sound archaeology, sound science, it can only prove the Old Testament. We have kings and empires mentioned in the Old Testament. For instance, David and his kingdom, Solomon and his kingdom, a number of other kings of Israel and Judah. All these things, excuse me, have now been confirmed by archaeology. The critics once used to say, Oh, this story in Jeremiah and Nehemiah and Daniel, other books about Israel going into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. We have no evidence of that in history. We have no evidence of that in archaeology. Guess what? Now we do. Abundant historical and archaeological evidence that there was indeed a Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, that the Jews were carried into exile to Babylon and later to Persia, and all these places and events that are mentioned in the Bible, there's proof that they really did happen. Um, Matter of fact, the names of over 40 different kings of various nations that are mentioned in the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Daniel, we read about Belshazzar, 
the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. We read about King Darius of Persia. All these are now documented by historical records that have been uncovered and archaeological finds. They find inscriptions even on stone columns of a number of these different kings. And again, I have no fear that the more they dig, the more they search, the more they will confirm every verse of the Old Testament to be accurate geographically and historically. Everything they find is always consistent with the times and the geographical places that are mentioned in the Old Testament Scripture. Now, a third way of looking at the reliability, the authenticity of the Old Testament, I mentioned, is looking at what Christ had to say. We've now proven that the New Testament is reliable. 20,000 manuscripts dating back to the first century, uh, numerous eyewitness accounts of miracles, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and on and on and on. So, if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the Great I Am, etc., etc., then we should put great weight on anything Jesus had to say about the Old Testament. And I'm going to be going through many, many scriptures here, and the notes for this will be eventually put up on our website if you want to access them, but uh, we may not have time to actually look up every single reference, because there are quite a few here. But I want to go through some detail, and again, I'm restricting this just to Christ. We're not even going to look at Paul and Peter and other apostles who wrote in the New Testament. We're just going to restrict this to Christ himself. What did he have to say that can help uh, strengthen our faith and confidence that the Old Testament is authentic and it is reliable? Now, if you look at the entire New Testament, and this is not just Christ, but including Paul and Peter and all the other writers, there are approximately 320 direct quotations from the Old Testament recorded in the New Testament. Direct quotes of the Old Testament. And there are hundreds of other uh, allusions, indirect references, to different stories, different portions of the Old Testament. And I want to begin this whole discussion by again looking at something Jesus said in John chapter 10. John 10, verses 34 and 35. And Jesus here is quoting an obscure verse of Scripture from the Old Testament. It's actually Psalm 82, verse 6. We're not going to bother looking that up. 
but if you want to check it, you can. But he's basically quoting from Psalm 82. And here's what he says, John 10, 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. You know, Jesus could have chosen a key passage from the Old Testament, but to make his point, he chose an obscure Old Testament passage that probably none of them had ever really even looked at that carefully to make his point, which is the scripture cannot be broken. Interesting how he used the Old Testament to make that point, that every line, every verse, every quotation from the Old Testament cannot be broken. And he says basically a similar thing in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Matthew, in Luke chapter 16, I'll read verses 16 to 17. Here here again, Jesus is having one of these uh, dialogues with the Pharisees. And in Luke 16, 16, he says, The law and the prophets, there are those two divisions of the Old Testament again, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Listen to verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And if you know anything about Hebrew, uh, there were little tiny marks. Um, The King James calls them jots and tittles. They were tiny little punctuation marks, kind of like the dot we put on an eye. Small little marks. He says those can't even disappear from the law. Again, the scripture cannot be broken. And similar passage that you find in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 5, verse 17 to 18. Matthew 5, 17 to 18. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So, in all of these passages, we can see Jesus is confirming 
not only the importance of the Old Testament, but the integrity of it. Every part of it is well-preserved for us, and God saw to it that not even one letter got deleted or was lost. And I'm convinced those Dead Sea Scrolls were supernaturally preserved by God, just so that we would have absolute confidence that we have the whole Old Testament just as Jesus had it in his day. Amazing. Now I can see we're not going to finish this tonight. Uh, Let me go just a little bit further here, and we're going to have to break this up into a second part for next week. Um, A lot of times people question, uh, how are we so sure that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what are generally called the five books of Moses, the Torah. Well, Jesus repeatedly confirms Moses as being the author of those five books. And I'm going to run through a number of quotations. These are direct quotes of Jesus in the New Testament where he's referring to Moses as the author of these different portions of those first five books of the Old Testament. For instance, Matthew 8 and verse 4. Jesus said to them, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And we don't have time to cross-reference all this, but in Leviticus, it spelled out certain offerings that they were to bring to to the priest if they were cured of leprosy. Well, Jesus, referring to that portion of Leviticus, he says, it's the gift that Moses commanded you. So here he's affirming that Leviticus was written by Moses. In Matthew 19, he's having a discussion with the Pharisees about divorce, (coughs) about divorce. And in Matthew 19, verse 7, They asked Jesus, Did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this, of course, is referring to Deuteronomy now. I think it's Deuteronomy 24. Jesus replied, Now he could have said, Wait, 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 we're not sure if Moses wrote that or not. No, he affirms. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So here we have a quotation from a second book from the Torah, now the book of Deuteronomy, which again Jesus confirms 
was written by Moses. All right, moving along to Mark chapter 7. The book of Exodus lists the Ten Commandments for us, one of which is the commandment to honor your father and mother. Let's see what Jesus has to say about that one. Mark chapter 7, verse 10. For Moses said, and then he quotes, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. Straight from the book of Exodus, Moses said that. So we now have Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all attributed by Jesus to the same author, Moses. Uh, further along in Mark, chapter 12, Jesus is now going to quote from the book of Genesis. And in Mark 12, 26, he says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, sorry, he's actually referring again to Exodus, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Okay, so again, confirming Exodus as being authored by Moses. Okay, there's a little more we're going to look at, and then we're going to close. John 5. John chapter 5. And verse 46. Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? All right. And also, while we're here in John, John chapter 7, and verse 19. Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And then verse 22, Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. And of course, Circumcision dates all the way back to the book of Genesis. And there is one more place where we can go back and in Matthew 19, we saw here earlier where in verse 8, 
he refers to Moses and this whole discussion about divorce. In Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus is quoting from the book of Genesis. And he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, a direct quotation from Genesis chapter 2. Jesus could have easily said, uh, you know, we're not sure about this book of Genesis, uh, not sure if it's in the scriptures or not. No, this was a part of the Jewish Bible. Everybody knew the story of Adam and Eve. They knew God was the creator, and he knew uh, that this was a quotation direct from the book of Moses, the book of Genesis. Um, let me do one more quick section here and show you how repeatedly Jesus confirms different portions of Isaiah as having been written by Isaiah. It's amazing. The critics have tried to tear apart the book of Isaiah and say it was written by different people and really wasn't all written by Isaiah and there are two different parts and we're not sure who wrote it and on and on and on it goes. But Jesus quotes from both sections of Isaiah and specifically states that Isaiah was the author of the book. Uh, let's now go to Matthew 13. And verse 13, Jesus is explaining why he taught in parables. And Matthew 13, 13, he says, This is why I speak to them in parables. And he's quoting, Though seeing, <clears throat> they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding, you will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. That is actually a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 6. No need to go there. If you want to look it up, you can. But he's quoting Isaiah 6, and he has no doubt that this is indeed the prophecy of Isaiah. Now look in Matthew 15. And verse 7. Matthew 15. From 7 to 9. You hypocrites... Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And then he quotes, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. 
And that's, again, a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. And he has no doubt who the author of this portion of Scripture that he's quoting is. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And thirdly, and this is where we'll end, John chapter 12 and verse 38. John 12, 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's a quotation, direct quotation, of Isaiah 53, verse 1. So, he's quoting from chapter 6, from chapter 29, and from chapter 53, and all three quotations he attributes to the one prophet Isaiah. He doesn't say this was written by a number of different men, all <clears throat> the word of Isaiah the prophet. And we're going to pick it up from here next time because there's much more. And I find this very powerful to see how many times Jesus not only quotes from the Old Testament, but confirms that this is indeed the scripture, and it all lines up with all of the different texts we've referred to, the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are no variations. The same scriptures that he's quoting are the <coughs> scriptures that they have found in those caves from 2,000 years ago. And so you and I can be absolutely sure that the Old Testament we're reading is basically with maybe a few minor word differences or translations. It's the same scriptures that Jesus had in his time. It's the same Jewish Bible that the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes of Jesus' day would have been reading and referring to. And we'll pick it up here next time and complete this study next week on the authenticity of the Old Testament. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that with total confidence we can read our Old Testament, we can read our New Testament, and know that we're not just reading a book of poetry or some book of religious writings that man has put together. This is a unique book. It is your holy book, the Biblos, the Holy Bible. And supernaturally, by your Holy Spirit, you put it all together from Genesis to Revelation, and you confirmed by the witness of your Holy Spirit that these are indeed the divine the holy scriptures that you have given to us. God, I thank you for this revelation, this special revelation of yourself that you've given to us in such great detail 
with all of the prophecies, with all of the teachings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Gospels, all the body of Scripture that you have preserved for us so carefully and so faithfully, so that when we read our Bible, we know that what we're reading is indeed the Word of God. Lord, bless each and every one that's joining in, both by telephone, by internet, or listening to the recordings of these Bible studies. Strengthen our faith, and God, equip us so that we can be ready in season and out to give logical reasons for our faith, to give logical defense for our hope and for our faith, both in the Bible and in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You are indeed risen from the dead, Lord Jesus, and we can put our total trust, our total confidence in you as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Redeemer, as our Keeper. God bless each and every one tonight. We give you praise and honor and glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Oh, Pastor Quasey's there. <laughs>